You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. This is your host, Lou Rosenfeld, hearing himself with his scratchy voice getting over COVID round two. Not as uh, easy as round one. I hope if you're going through it, wherever you are, it, uh, it goes gentle. Um, I have a special guest today. I'm really happy to have Alex Schmidt join me. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm great. Hi, Lou. How are you? Other than the COVID, uh, I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm still standing, sitting in this case, and and glad to be talking. Folks, Alex is the author of our latest book. It's called Deliberate Intervention, Using Policy and Design to Navigate the Harms of New Technology. Boy, we spent a lot of time on that subtitle and the title, uh, arm wrestling and whatnot. We got there. And more importantly, Alex, you got here after I think we sat down a long time ago where you work in the cafeteria of the Federal Reserve Building in uh, downtown Manhattan, actually just a block from my own office. And uh, you told me a couple things. You said that uh, the building has more gold in it than Fort Knox. Yep. Yep. And it that you wanted to write a book or that you were interested i can't remember who who pushed whom it was so long ago but but, i know it's yeah i think it's almost four years ago now believe believe it or not when we started this journey don't don't tell our other authors please but (laughs) um uh but i knew you were going to take something of a journalistic approach to the topic because well that's your background right you've written for, uh, well, you've written for a UX publication or two, like Smashing and A List Apart, but I... Not Smashing. Oh, not Smashing, okay. Uh, No, um, but yes, A List Apart and a couple others. Um, Yes, and also NPR and, you know, I had a non-UX journalistic... uh, LA Times. Yep, yep. Columbia Journalism Review, like small little little, uh, flash-in-the-pan publications. (laughs) But um, but let's talk about you know, what you were thinking when we were sitting in the cafeteria in the Federal Reserve some four years ago, what what needed to be explored? Well, um, Lou, I will refresh your memory that um, I think that you stumbled upon me because maybe you Googled privacy and UX or something and you were found some stuff I'd written about the topic That's of privacy. Right. Um, and you reached out to me and you said, would you like to write about a book about privacy? And long story short, I did not want to do that uh, for a number of reasons that I'm happy to get into. Um, And I had just started my job at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, where I still work. And I should say that my views do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve. uh, And I will not be discussing the Fed anywhere in this conversation other than the fact then to mention that I work there. And as a designer. Or is it a researcher? Uh, I, I, I like sort of design and research, I would right. say. Yes, okay. all um, software stuff. Yes, correct. So you are one uh, of us. Certainly one of certainly one of the wider community of UX practitioners. Um, and so when we met, um, I had just started that job and it was quite a big challenge and I kind of needed a break. I needed to think, uh, you know, immerse myself there and think about what I really wanted to write about. And about a year later, I did figure it out. If you remember, I made these kind of mind maps about mm-hmm. what I wanted to say. We kind of early on communicated through mind maps. 
Um, and the lens that I picked that I really wanted to use was around policy. And amazingly, you went for it. Thank you, Lou. <laughs> um, um, I'm just, I'll publish anything. No. <laughs> but, you know, I do think it is an important um, topic and happy to kind of jump into more, you know, why that was the lens I chose vis-a-vis the privacy lens uh, now or later. Why don't we go for it? Why was that important? Um, so, you know, the reason that I kind of didn't, so privacy is covered in my book. It's a topic that's discussed, but I felt that it was not, uh, the approach that I wanted to take because, um, I didn't feel like it encompassed the harms of new technology in a way that I wanted to kind of address the harms of new technology. I think privacy is a useful lens, but right now, we have been living with digital technology for so much longer uh, than when privacy kind of came to the fore that we have better ways of describing the harms of new technology than the word privacy really gets across. And so I wanted to take a different approach and I chose policy because I felt that you could use the policy lens to talk about all different types of harms and how to address all different kinds of harms, not just ones related to privacy. Um, and so anyway, privacy is a subset, but it's not the totality of the book. Well, what else would you add? What's on the, the, the uh, sadly long laundry list of harms? Okay, so I am going to, so one part of the book, and as I mentioned to Lou, I have a terrible memory, okay? So I have my book open here and my, my book is my crib sheet right now. And I'm like, what did I say? But so, um, you know, one of the things that I have in the book uh, is about quantifying harms of new technology, right? So until you can kind of name them, you can't really address harms, right? So right now there are really smart people who are attempting to kind of call out what are the harms of digital technology? And give me one second, I am getting mm -hmm. there. I wish I had a table of contents that I could click around, but it's just in a PDF right now. So Oh, uh, come on. We're you, you trying, got didn't we I'm give you the EPUB version yet or the Mobi version? All right. <laughs> oh my god, one second. I'm like, what chapter is this even in? Because the I and I don't want to misquote these people because you know, as I mentioned to you, Lou, I don't necessarily consider myself a subject matter expert in the things that I've written about. And by the way, I found it, so I'm gonna read some stuff. Um I have this journalistic background. So what I did was I did a ton of research and I pulled together the really smart things that so many other people said. Um, and so I am referring back to a lot of those things in this book as we're talking right now. So um, there are a couple of really great lists of what are the harms of technology today? One, it comes from uh, two privacy scholars named Danielle Citrin and Daniel Solov. And the other is, I'm gonna mispronounce his name, but Ken Bowles. Kenneth? Kenneth Bowles. Kenneth Bowles. Thank you, Lou. Um, so I'll just read a few of them. And by the way, these two lists really have a lot of in sync. So discrimination and bias, uh, physical harms, uh, reputational, emotional, um, global warming and climate change. So as you can see, we can talk about the harms that new technology is actually perpetrating uh, in a way that I think the privacy word doesn't really properly reflect. Okay, so it's it's pretty broad. Um, and the the overall lens was really helpful for you to kind of 
start looking at this collective group of harms. But um, so it's an interesting intersection, design and policy. Is, is there like a special role for people from the design space in policy? Are we people who should be designing policies or is it more important simply that we know that the policy space exists and have a better way to map it out so we can at least function within the reality of the fact that policies exist? So you've said so many things that I think are true. And well, thank you. Uh, I, I try. Well done. Um, so uh, the answer to all your questions is yes. Um, you know, there is a chapter in the book that's about bringing design methods uh, into policy creation, and there's a lot of really smart people working on that. So there's definitely space for that. Um, I also think that, you know, there's some really interesting designers who I talked to in this book who are reaching into the policy space to connect with policymakers. I think that's a fascinating intersection. So one of the people that I talked to for this book is a designer named Yuhan Sonin. Uh, mm -hmm. And he is based in Washington, D.C., and he focuses specifically on healthcare tech. And he has a lot of views on healthcare policy as a result of being on the ground and working with users. And he advocates for, you know, policy changes um, using his own unique lens that he has on the ground. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that the book mentions early on is that um, policy and design have two very different, but I think complementary frames where design is kind of at the ground level of the user um, and policy is at a level of society. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, each lens has its blind spots and each lens has its strengths. And so I think those two things can really um, complement each other. Um, there's a whole chapter on how to kind of how those spaces spheres broadly are kind of coming together. But I think they're two really important, very different complementary lenses. But if I'm a designer, though, do I, I, I mean, other than maybe knowing that policy is there, whether I like it or not, or may, and maybe the policy's there intentionally, or maybe there's policy by default, um, can I do anything about it other than being aware? Well, I think to answer your question, policy isn't always there. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, um, chapter four, I believe I'm making sure. Yes. Is about unconstrained spaces and the emergence of harm. So, um, when technology, when different types of technologies are very new, you can think of them as being unconstrained. Um, and that is when we haven't really seen how they're going to interact with humans in the world, and we don't really know what harms they might bring forth. Um, a great example of that is voice interfaces. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, this is going to change, you know, like this is very topical right now. In a year, I'm sure this will be out of date. But, you know, we don't know necessarily. We do know some about voice interface, but that's an example where it's like somewhat unconstrained, right? Because um, harms have not necessarily emerged, been quantified, publicized, talked about. Um, we don't really have policy that constrains that technology. So um, there's another chapter in the book, which is all about constrained spaces. And that, that chapter is about um, 
construction, finance, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And those are spaces where, you know, harms are much better understood and quantified. And so they're very policy constrained. And designers working in those spaces are extremely familiar with policy because they have to work within it and figure out how to. So I think if you're a designer working in new tech, versus a designer working in one of these constrained spaces, your experience is quite different um, depending on where you where you sit. Okay, so um, in one setting, in the constrained spaces, which are often traditional, like construction, like finance, like you're saying, uh, you have no choice but to, for example, make sure the, the, the copy uh, on the, uh, the, the app uh, goes through legal and compliance review because they're in effect trying to make sure that um, the product uh, isn't running counter to state or federal or other national laws and, and policies. And I, so that's, that's interesting. Um, when I talk to people who work in those spaces, who are designers are often just frustrated. Um, they're just trying to kind of wrap their, their minds around it, especially in the, in the public sector, there's a lot for them to keep in mind. They, you know, I, so I don't know if you have any words of wisdom for people in these constrained spaces as they try to kind of get a map of what they need to know about while they're doing their design work in terms of policy. Uh, is, it, is there um, a best practice? Uh, is there a checklist manifesto equivalent for, for people who are designers who are trying to understand the policy landscape? Oh my goodness, there's so much I could say. Um, you know, one of the things that I'll mention is, you know, one of the people who I interviewed for the book is actually a friend of mine. Her name is Karina Bien Wilner, and she is an architect. Um, and she noted that, you know, when new architects start in architecture and they learn that they have to do a code review and understand the laws and the zoning, it's like such a disappointment. And it's really a letdown because they have these wonderful ideas about things that they should build. And she said such an interesting thing. And pardon me, I'm trying to see if I can find her quote, but um, I might not be able to. Uh, she said something along the lines of uh, if it's just, you know, imaginary, it's not really for people. Mm. Um, and I think that, um, you know, as, as frustrating as policy might be, that is what it's about. Um, and something to think about with regards to policy and the policy sphere is that it moves much slower than the private sector. And it kind of does that for a good reason. Um, it does that because society gets shaped at a slower pace by policy, which is more deliberative mm -hmm. than the private sector that's like iterating and putting stuff out. Right. And you know what? That's OK. They operate at diff in different time frames. And so when you're in a more policy constrained space, that's the type of space you're in. You're in a more deliberative space that's thinking about the impacts of technology on society. Um, and that's just the kind of space you're in. Um, I realize that it can be challenging, but, you know, there are a lot of interesting questions even within uh, policy constrained spaces, you know, how you deal with the constraints, how you get creative within the constraints. I think that's where real creativity comes from. I mean, a blank slate is super fun, but like, it's not super challenging. Well, I'm smiling because, you know, your example of, um, you, you were using architecture a moment ago as a constrained space. And 
Um, before I was an information architect, I actually wanted to be a, an architect architect. And I, I spent uh, actually in, a, in high school uh, three years uh, learning that. And we, we actually had architecture offerings back in those days. And um, I remember finally getting to like design my own buildings. And there was that like, Blank, literal blank slate, that open piece of paper. And then the, uh, the teacher said, yes, but you have to have, um, uh, you, you can't design it, the, the building too large. Uh, uh, I think it was something like, you, you know, there has to be an I-beam in the basement holding up the building. And long story short, suddenly there was all these constraints and I just soured on it. But I think if I had understood or had been taught that actually that's a good thing not only because it makes it usable in a way that doesn't kill people by collapsing on them uh it, it also just is like it's as good as the constraints of landscape or or you know uh, wh whatever the natural constraints are that that's a, a thing that I, I i think we don't always remember about policy it's something that actually it is a good set of guardrails for the design process Yep, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. And I understand the frustration, I get it. You know, but I think a lot of folks who are in the UX space, and I have a whole chapter on this also, uh, about you know designing more for enterprise spaces. I think we're like a lot of the UX education really poorly serves our society because it assumes that people are gonna work in private sector user-facing products. And so much of our critical infrastructure is not that. And, you know, we don't have, you know, good education programs around, for example, designing for off-the-shelf software. Do you know how much off-the-shelf software runs the stuff that, like, runs our lives from airplanes to transportation to, you know, energy? You fill in the blank, you know? That is not Airbnb and Spotify. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it still needs design. And so I think, you know, this is like my little hobby horse that I will not shut up about, but I really wish that, you know, more people were excited about designing for those types of spaces. Well, we, we've been trying with uh, the Enterprise UX conference and, and what it's morphed into in the last few years. It, it you know, it's got, it, it, it's sometimes uh, appealing to people, sometimes uh, less so, uh, but you're making me think of the doctor's appointment I had this morning. I was looking over the, the nurse's shoulder as she struggled with uh, uh, some interface uh, put out by Epic. <laughs> so, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, I hear no, you. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about if you were, um, you know, starting your own design program, you're the Dean and you want to make sure some of these gaps are filled educationally. What are you going to fill it with? What, what kind of offerings, what kind of, where would you go looking for faculty to help, uh, get people, uh, you know, to help them level set in a way that they can't right now? Oh my goodness, man, that is a very good question. I mean, I do think one place, you know, as depressing as EHR, electronic health record software is, um, it is pretty like, it is more advanced, let us say, than other off-the-shelf tools. Um, and, you know, I, I interviewed somebody who works for Epic for the book. Um, his name is Eris Blevins. He's super smart. Um, so folks who work for EHR, I think, have some extremely important lessons to, to teach. One of the ones that he told me I found so fascinating 
When new designers start at Epic, they take a three to six month long mini college course on health policy. Mm. And I found that really, really interesting. You know, like it's not just about design. It's about this societal space that you're in and you need to understand it to do good design. Oh, this is a real exciting thing for me because one of when I complain about design education, I'm always grouching about the lack of attention to people skills and other quote soft skills, unquote. Uh, you know, we, you know, you might have your craft down pat, but you're not going to really understand things like how to manage, how to communicate, negotiate, how to listen. seems like policy should be pretty high up on that list. Understanding that as a less tangible constraint, but an important constraint nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, yes, a hundred percent. That would be fantastic. And I think even in like the policy unconstrained spaces, uh, like the ones I was mentioning, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's stuff to understand there. Like what are, what's on the horizon as far as policy with digital technology of of all forms, Um, whether it's privacy, antitrust bans, you know, there's all these things at multiple levels of government um, that are emerging. And I think being aware of those things, how is society writ large, attempting to address the technology that you, designer, are working on on the ground. Aren't well, you curious about that? I am. Uh, so curious that I'm out of breath, which means it's a good time to take a quick break. <laughs> listening to the Rosenfeld Review, my guest is Alex Schmidt. We're going to talk about those unconstrained spaces after the break. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, Not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you join one of our communities again it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in ask questions and so forth we'll give you access to the recordings and uh, for some of those communities we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators you'll also get a newsletter you'll get access to An advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs uh, programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale. And by the way, most of our conferences sell out and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com slash communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. We are talking with our guest, Alex Schmidt, author of the next Rosenfeld Media book, Delivered Intervention. Alex, uh, we were talking about constrained spaces before the break. Let's jump into uh, the 
unconstrained spaces where you have new technologies that really, I mean, like I, I'm guessing that's where the biggest harms are emerging. Well, the newest ones, certainly. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, true. I mean, things like nuclear weapons have been around for a few years yeah. now and they're, they're, they can be pretty harmful, but right. yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that is true. Uh, what would you like me to say about that? Well, I mean, so, I mean, first of all, uh, I'm guessing that, you know, a designer in an unconstrained setting has their hands maybe even more full because they're like fewer guidelines. I mean, policies are guidelines. They're based on experience. Right. Right. And what is, you know, do we even have that policy infrastructure in place in those settings? Right. And if not, what, what can a designer do? I mean, are there policies that just are, are there sort of by default, like they're right. kind of unconscious right. policies? Right. I think that's true. Uh, there certainly are. But I think, you know, what what often what happens, I think, in a lot of these spaces where let's say, you know, it's kind of very startup y um, and maybe you're working with a new technology like facial recognition. Mm -hmm. um, what is going on there is a search for use cases. So what does that mean? A, a search for use cases? It's you have this technology and you're trying to figure out what problem does it solve? which runs very counter to the dogma that we hear in UX that you start with the problem and then you find the solution that mm -hmm. fits it. Uh, in these unconstrained spaces, it's really the other way around. You have some new capability, some new tools, some new way of doing things. And you're like, how do I plug this in? You got a hammer, you're looking for nails. Exactly, exactly right. And so, um, you know, that's the case with, you know, uh, voice interface, as I mentioned, you know, I interviewed Philip Hunter, who's mm -hmm. um, wor worked on Amazon's Alexa. And he said, you know, he said, as technologies mature and gain widespread adoption, core elements of it start to crystallize. But for emerging technologies, there's this you don't know yet. Um, and you simply don't. And um, I don't know if folks have listened to the rabbit hole podcast uh, from the New York Times. It's fantastic. I really recommend it. Um, and it's about how radicalization happens uh, via algorithms. Mm -hmm. um, and that those, I have to say, those producers got some gets, you know, you know, they interviewed one of the um, engineers for YouTube who was working on the AI, uh, the AI at the algorithm for YouTube to feed users new content. Um, and they were trying to think, hey, how do I apply, you know, my knowledge around AI and they were like, hey, I'm at a video place, you know, a place that feeds videos to people. What, what indicates that the AI is working? And they settled on this metric of watch time. And they thought if people are engaging with more and more videos, that must mean that it's working. And my, my technology found an application and it's doing great things. Well, as they found out later, it was feeding users more and more sensational videos because that's what increased the watch time metric. Um, so that's a perfect example, I think, of, you know, being on the ground, searching for use cases, uh, finding one, um, and the, the need to find a use case really kind of overshadows almost anything else. And if you find one and it fits, it's like, you know, flashbang, that's so exciting. Um, and I think that's really what it's like to be in a, the unconstrained spaces, especially if you have, you know, VC money backing your bet. 
you know, really, you're going to be looking out for harms? Probably not. You got to pay back some investors. Um, so there's all these other incentives and drivers. Um, and, you know, I just want to come back to this idea that um, it, I actually haven't mentioned it yet in our conversation, but it's always in my mind, which is that, you know, design can't save the world. Mm -hmm. And if you're in design, you're in the private sector, usually. Um, and that's just, you're still in capitalism. And so that's, I think, why I really wanted to write this book that also talked about policy in the public sector, because I don't think design should be expected to save the world and harms do emerge from technology. And that's the way things go. Um, and I do think, you know, being somebody on the ground who's working on these things, there are things you can do, but up to a point and that you can't solve it all. Right. So harm is going to emerge from the thing that you do and you can keep an eye on it and there's things you can do and I can go into that. But at some point we have this policy frame that's also part of the puzzle. Well, I'd like to get into that. And I remember one point we were talking while you were working on the book about how like the ultimate goal, if I understand it, is for people in design to get further and further upstream, closer and closer to the point where policy is being considered and maybe designed. Um, is is that the ultimate goal of what you should be trying to do as a designer? And but more importantly, in the near term, what are some of those things that that you would recommend people do now? Yeah. So there's actually a lot of things that I think designers can do. Again, I don't think there's any single person in the private sector who can solve all these problems. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's why, you know, I think it is so important to consider the public sector as a piece of the puzzle. But there are things that can happen. Um, and so chapter five is all about internal interventions, in, internal interventions, as I call them. So that's within companies themselves. What can designers on the ground or managers or whoever do um, as perhaps they notice like harms are emerging or uh, want to raise a flag, anything like that. So there's a bunch of stuff. So one that I think, you know, this is, again, a lot of these ideas are not mine. I brought them together and I'm kind of putting them into one book. But one of the ones that's sort of um, a proactive approach is team diversity and harm mm -hmm. prevention. And harms of bias are a major one that has been, you know, cataloged, enumerated um, in digital tech. And I can get into that more. But one of the ways that you can avoid harms of bias is by having a diverse team um, because we know that. You know, people who don't have dark skin color tend to kind of ignore designing things that work for darker skin tones. So like facial you know, recognition is a good, great like example. Facial recognition. You know, we have examples of people who have been, you know, uh, improperly arrested uh, because facial recognition doesn't work well for all skin tones. So, you know, we know that team diversity can help prevent harms of bias. So there's things that you can do proactively. Um, there's also this idea of targeting designs to those most likely to be harmed. So, you know, with credit to Sarah Wachter Betcher, mm -hmm. who has written an amazing book about this topic, Technically Wrong, um, and um, Ruha Benjamin, who wrote a book, Race After Technology. You know, if you are able to target your designs to the people who are most likely to be harmed, uh, a lot of other people might benefit too, not even to mention the people who like can experience this harm. And I think a really good example of that is your one, one often cited is curb cuts in sidewalks, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I think were, were created for people in wheelchairs. 
um, or mobility challenges. And they ended up helping people with baby strollers. Exactly. So, you know, you know, when you kind of um, target things to the people who are going to experience the most problems, it actually makes it better for everyone. So there's certain proactive things you can do. And then there's also reactive things you can do to kind of try to mitigate harm. One more question before we wrap, though. And this is really, it's, again, about the unconstrained setting uh, where policy is less defined um, or not at all. Uh, so policy moves really slow. If you were looking at the Stuart brand pace layering model, it's pretty close to the center. And... Uh, technology uh, moves really fast. It's at the one of those outer layers of his model. And uh, it seems to me people in our neck of the woods, designers, were sort of like in between. We're trying to kind of like slow down the technology, speed up the policy, somehow sync them up. We're, we're sort of the the... That, like we're stuck between two cadences and uh, how do we, I don't know if there's a way to answer this because it, you know, it's kind of metaphysical, but how do we navigate that situation where we're trying to kind of resolve, if not synchronize things that are moving at extremely different speeds and where we may be like among the people most affected by those two speeds, most in the middle. I mean, man, you know, I don't have the exact answer to it. There is a chapter in the book called Bringing Policy and Design Closer Together and about how these spheres are moving together. And there are ways that they are moving together. Um, you know, for example, you know, their governmental analysis of new tech could work better. You know, it's not only for designers to, you right. know, bring it closer together. It's also for government to work better, right? Like it's on both sides. Um there's also a lot of interesting programs that are bringing um, tech folks into government or teaching um, teaching uh, a policy to, to tech folks and then having them advocate. Um, there's a couple of really interesting programs um, called the Aspen uh, Tech Policy Hub. Um, there's a program called Tech Talent Project, Encoding It Forward. Um, there's, you know, designers attempting to influence policy agendas like the person I cited earlier. Um, I think that there's some really examples, really interesting examples of that. And also I'll just mention, you know, there's this idea of regulatory sandboxes, which, you know, they have kind of a mixed, um, mixed uh, report card, mm -hmm. but, you know, they are literally, you know, sandboxes where startups can experiment uh, with regulators and sort of they can kind of see which uh, policy constraints might be needed on emerging technology. So that it's a very, it's a more common thing sort of in the finance space, mm -hmm. but I think it's a very interesting concept. It needs some work. It needs some love, but you know, maybe there's something there um, that can be explored and refined. That, that's interesting. It sounds like if you're going to move fast and break things, break them in the sandbox. Yeah. And like, also, you know, maybe you're moving away from like a, um, an adversarial stance mm -hmm. where you're actually just saying, Hey, like, don't want to break the world, but like want to create new things. Can we do this together? Love it. And, um, love the book. I'm biased, of course. Uh, but before we wrap up, uh, one last question in, in the Rosenfeld review tradition 
of having my guests bring a, a, a gift to our listeners. What, what do you have for us? What's, what should they know about? Well, um, I am going to mention um, a book. Uh, it's also, it's actually more of like a long essay. It's called Systemantics, How Systems Work and Especially How They Fail by John Gall, G-A-L-L. Uh, I found it because it was cited in the footnotes of another book that I read. Um, and That's good journalism. You're, you're... You know what? Always, always look through the footnotes. You will find some Absolutely. gems. Um, and it is really, you know, in some ways kind of a, it, it's uh straddles the line between being satire and real in like a really brilliant way. Uh, and it's very funny. It's also kind of like dark and hopeless. Uh, it's just like the perfect tone for me personally. I highly recommend the book. Um, you know, when you get into the concept of like wicked problems and things that don't have easy solutions, that's like right where this book sits. But it's so funny, which I think in in and of itself is like kind of a hopeful thing to be funny, even though things are so hard. So really recommend Systematic. Well, it sounds like in this space, um, you might not survive without a sense of humor. So you uh, will cool. all have two books to read. Systematics and Deliberate Intervention by our guest today, Alex Schmidt. It is now on pre-order. Now is uh, early September 2022. Uh, I think it is formally out in mid-November. That's uh, what I've heard. So we, excited. We keep your fingers crossed that the supply chain issues with printing and paper don't bite us on the butt. Oh, uh, gosh. Alex Schmidt product strategist at the Federal Reserve, uh, journalist. You bring all these things together in so many interesting ways. Thank you for joining us today. And more importantly, thank you for writing the book. It's going to be a great contribution. Thank you so much, Lou. I really appreciate it. Thank you for believing in me. Cheers. <laughs>